Howard Lindzen is the founder and general partner at Social Leverage. All opinions expressed by Howard and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Social Leverage or StockTwits. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. Guests may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Yo, 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 key knucklehead. What is that? <laughs> that one I haven't heard before. Congratulations. We're all knuckleheads right now. We are. To month, degree. We're at month one. Our yes. One month anniversary. Almost five weeks now. Panic with friends. Have I gotten better at this, you think? I think you have. What's biggest weakness that you've noticed? Uh, your biggest weakness? Hmm. All right, Maybe a little. Enough. All right, no, go ahead. <laughs> a little quick to uh, talk over other people. Uh-huh. I my wife says the same thing. I think part of my problem of doing that, and I'm getting better. I'm 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 on because I have a lot to say myself. And secondly, it's not seeing their face and knowing when they're going to pause is it is is tricky. Understandable. So the more you let the guests talk, the better. As I've learned, you just never know if they're finished. I think part of the problem is, and then I get excited sometimes and over talk. <laughs> Why can't you interrupt and just say, Howard, you're over talking? I think you should chime in once in a while. All right. So this is I'll on keep you. that in mind. It's right, on okay. me now. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, that's I'll it. just say, be nice, Howard. I'm just be nice. Docking your pay a week. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. You'll notice. Okay. We are today going to get Rob Petrozo on the phone. Uh, great name. One of the smartest guys I know in, in startup branding. He's helped uh, build Rally Road, which is a unique IPO for collector items idea that uh, Social Leverage is an investor in. But Rob has a unique, unique way of building this brand. And I just want people, you know, startups to hear about this because they're doing everything from pop-up store to uh, merchandise to unique offerings. And even in the bear market here, they sold out of a uh, Neil Armstrong New York Times cover, I think it was last week, $32,000. So, so while people are quick to say, oh, people aren't going to want these weird things, I would argue that people are going to want them more than ever in a world where they have more time to collect things and have things have more meaning and, and uh, uh, scarcity. But uh, we'll hear it right from the horse's mouth. So uh, we'll get right to it. Uh, I'm going to do uh, Knut. I'm going to... Let's just get right to it. You know, Manscaped, uh, to my audience, you know, Manscaped, I've been loading up both on toilet papers, but uh, Manscaped products as well, as you know, Canute. Um, I know you. You can get 20% off this portfolio company our sh- uh, shipping <clears throat> using the code social leverage. If you go to manscaped.com, use social leverage, you get 20% off um, uh, free shipping in the product. So uh, go ahead and try that. And let's get Rob on the phone. Rob Petroso. Mr. Lindsden, what's up? Not much. Am I pronouncing it correctly? You are. You are. It only took uh, two and a half years. I'm glad. Thank you. <laughs> it's all right. I, I don't even know how to say Knut's name. It's been 20, <laughs> it's been almost 30 years. Are you holed up in the city or outside the city? I'm holed up in, uh, in downtown Manhattan right now. There's no way out. That's it. And is it still barren? It's barren, but it's got a little, it's on nice days. There's almost a little bit too much activity, a little bit concerning about how many people want to go to the West Side Highway and run or jump on a bike. But days like this, it's a little bit uh, rainy today. It's just completely barren, no cars, nothing. 
and uh, you're hunkered down with your fiance or just by yourself? Yeah, with my girlfriend in our apartment right now, we're trying to um, not get on each other's nerves as much as possible and make it through. That's the plan right now. Have you put a tape, a lot taped a line in the apartment like the old Brady Bunch, and she's on this side nah, and you're on that side? No, it's getting close. Yeah, it's getting close. I think she's going to institute that next week. I'm trying to avoid it as much as possible because I like the uh, left side of my apartment, but we'll <laughs> see how that goes. So you have a complicated business in terms of what you do. So give everybody a little background on Rally Road and... Um, We'll get into panic and other things, but uh, a little background on yourself and the company and what Rally Road is today. Yeah, so Rally Road at a high level is essentially the stock market of collectibles. So what we do is we take items that have value, whether they're old or new, vintage, uh, new classics, everything from classic cars where this started, to sports memorabilia, to wine, to watches, all these things that the the kind of wealthy have always sort of had access to. They've appreciated in value over time. They have a strong history of returns. We turned them into a small a small company and essentially uh, run an initial public offering on those within our app. And then uh, after 90 days, we let those trade once monthly, similar to sort of a repricing in a Dutch auction market. So what we're building, what we've been building over the course of the last four years is really a brand new way to get access to these really unique assets and then some liquidity around those as well. And what's, what's it been like through this? I mean, obviously it's different because, you know, the company has to be wary of, you know, your work from home, et cetera. And have you done any offerings since the uh, market crashed? Yeah. So we were in a spot that we had pushed a bunch of new uh, assets through the SEC for approval right before all this kind of kicked off. So like, you know, January into February, we were really planning for what would be Q2. And I think that kind of put us in a good position where we had enough assets and sort of enough activity in the app. And we have, you know, a really engaged user base who really cares about what we do. And they're, they're a sticky group of people. They, they care about what we do and they invest in every offering. So they were kind of prepared mentally to be spending money with us, I think, over the course of, you know, months ahead. For us, in terms of the way that the business runs, it changed in that it's it's a lot of what we do is is really creative in a room, throwing ideas around about what might work, and then matching them up to data. And that kind of changed because all that's on Zoom now, obviously. But our user base has been really, really, um, really on board with sticking with us through this. And I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that these assets, in general, we don't market too heavily. We don't we don't preach a message in any way, shape, or form around whether you should or shouldn't invest. But over time, I think a lot of our investors have gotten really savvy and they realize that a lot of assets that look and feel like what we do um, have been a good store of value. They've been a safe place over time. They live through 08, 09. And we just publish that data as best we can and let them make that determination. And that's kind of stuck with a lot of our users to this point. And what's the, the thing that surprised you the most so far? I think what we're seeing that's that's really interesting, well, A, I'm shocked that we're able to operate this business without all being together for, for a month at a time, just the entire company. It's uh, probably been a month, yeah. It's been a full month at this point. Like the We closed the office up the realistically the second week of Because your office is in Soho. Your office is in the center of- Yes, we have our office uh, in Soho. Yeah, it's the middle of it. I mean, that, and that was the first thing to close, and that was a little bit concerning. We had you know $4 million worth of assets in our storefront downstairs. We had a lot going on upstairs in terms of the way we run our business. To be able to get all those pieces in place quickly and be able to get the team sort of mobilized on doing this virtually was something that happened quicker than I expected in a good way. Um, the other side of that is what we've seen is that new investors coming into our platform, they're moving much quicker than I think they were earlier. So what we've seen is that, you know, this past, the past Friday's offering, for example, was a, uh, an Apollo 11 newspaper signed by the entire crew from July of, July of 1969. 
And that was an asset that had a lot of attention around it from our existing investors. We saw a lot of new investors, though, too. And when they come in, what they wind up doing is the average investment is a little bit lower on average, but the trade-offs that they convert way quicker than normal. So, you know, just under two or three launches from the time they create their account, they're making their first investment and they're getting active really, really quickly. So that's kind of one of the big surprises that we've seen to this point that we're excited to see where that goes in the future as well. Wow. And how big is the team? 20-ish, 30-ish? Yeah, somewhere between 20 and 30. I mean, it ranges. We have a little bit of an offshore team. We have uh, around 20 in-house that we have in the office sort of every day that are part of these uh, the stand-ups every morning now. And that breaks out into a mix of regulatory and finance, uh, a little bit of ops and a little bit of marketing. And then the product and tech side, which is myself, uh, our CTO, Vinny, and a team of around six that just kind of you know pound through all the updates one by one. And, and, and the issue, I think the biggest issue that we talk about as investors and friends of the company is how do you balance the people who deserve or, or bought in, or, you know, been all in all your offerings versus letting new people in? Because these things are selling out in like five minutes. Yeah, they happen quick. So the last, that, that's another kind of, I don't want to say it's a surprise because it's kind of par for the course at this point, but the last three weeks of offerings between, you know, uh, $160,000, $170,000 worth of stuff over the course of a month. You're talking about a combined sellout in around 10 minutes for all of those or 15 minutes for all of them. So what we try to do as best we can is always have something available. So we just got a bunch of stuff back from the SEC. What we'll be doing is putting more stuff into the app that's a lower price point. Maybe there's some limits on amount of shares, but something so that those new investors don't come in and have to just wait for something to happen or hope they get in in, in three or four minutes. We do want to sort of create this access lane for everybody. Part of the features that we'll be putting into the app at some point in the very near future that we're working on right now is that tier that kind of gives that mix of, you know, quick access to stuff. The idea that we can do a little bit of margin potentially instead of having to wait for balance transfers. If you have reputation on platform, you'll have access to money, to deals, to all the things that I think those people definitely do deserve. We want to make sure there's that nice balance between existing investors who been really good to us and the new investor who wants to try something new but doesn't want to be intimidated or boxed out when things happen really, really quickly. So all part of the product roadmap for sure. The, um, and then how, how did the idea come about? How did you guys all get together? Yeah. So myself, uh, my co-founders, Chris and Max, Chris is our CEO. Max is our CFO. Uh, we've known each other for a long time. I think that we all individually, myself on the product and design side, Chris on the operations side, had a couple of businesses before this, uh, in the tech space. And Max was at, at Barclays for, you know, well over a decade doing a bunch of private placement deals and, and M&A transactions. So we kind of had like, you know, the 10,000 hours in each of our individual disciplines and we'd known each other for almost 20 years. We knew that there was a space in 2014, 2015 when we started talking about this. Kickstarter was kind of new. There was a few ideas around sort of what alternative assets were going to be. There was no easy way to get in and there was always sort of a minimum investment or you had to be an accredited investor. The Jobs Act kind of changed all of that, which was really intended to allow regular everyday people to invest in really interesting things like startups. So we started talking to our lawyers about what this could actually be while we all kind of still had jobs. And uh, they structured something that essentially turned anything into a company and then that company into an investment. So we were kind of like, like the pioneers on that side. And now you see a bunch of other people coming into similar spaces or trying to do a real estate or art. I think what we did in 2015, 2016, which was at that point a massive risk to even try this, set the groundwork for where we are now, we could start thinking about what intangibles look like and what some of these really esoteric investments might look like. And that came from that kind of mix of experience between all three of us. And what's been the, so what do you think the future holds in terms of weird assets or unique assets? Is it just across the board or like, I, I don't think know it I, is. I mean, it's you, you, you see it too. You see it as much as we see it, but 
the interesting opportunities for you know a kid on Robinhood right now are are the Teslas of the world, and at one point they were you know the Tilrays, and they're all these things that really speak to what a 25 or a 26 or a 30 year old actually cares about right now. And that's things like renewable energy. It's things like what the future of, of workplace actually looks like. It's it's stuff that we're starting to think about now with intangibles. And we think about things like, you know, the, the Redwood Forest and the energy credits that might go with that. You're doing a little bit of good, but also giving someone access to something real. We think about things like music, where the industry right now is very fragmented and the the business as a whole is trying to find its place. But music as an industry is this massive, massive behemoth that has a million different layers to it. All that type of stuff is where we want to be. Anywhere that there's a disconnect between the people that really care about something and the people that are creating it, we want to sort of fill that gap and be able to bring those two together. So any of those spaces are going to be really interesting for us in the future. And for alternative asset investing in general, I think those are going to be interesting spaces. And what about Soho and and marketing and, and pop-up shops? What, what made it uh, something that you wanted to do? I mean, A, I know you like being in Soho a lot, so we wanted to make sure there was always a place for you to come hang out. I'm so happy. But, yeah. I miss Soho. I miss New York, but I don't know if it'll no, be the same for me. It. I, I it's going to be weird know. for me, too. Yeah. I heard you I heard you a couple of days ago talking about it, saying that it's like being there every month isn't necessarily on your radar right now anymore. No. <clears throat> and for me, I mean, living here and being here my whole life, I don't. I, it's hard for me to not feel the same, like things are going to change dramatically. But that's a space just where on our block on Lafayette Street, where our office is and where our storefront is in between Prince and Spring. It's the heart of Soho, and it's this middle block that has this mix of what's been there forever, this firehouse across the street and a couple of buildings that are still owned by sort of you know private families, ours included, is this one family owns our business, owns the building that our business is in. But then you also have like, you know, the restaurants like St. Ambrose and you have the Lululemons of the world and you have, you know, Stock X is on our corner now. It's this mix of old and new. And that's something that in New York you don't always get. You either get the the Fifth Avenue all the way uptown or you get like the parts of Brooklyn where things are springing up now, taking over whole blocks. The mix of cobblestone streets and real industry and startups, all that exists in Soho right now. So that DNA was something that we wanted to be a part of. Yeah, I think it's early days of that, right? Like marketing, I just don't know. I know how to see good marketing. or I know when I see it, I don't know how to do it. When did you get into that? I think it was the same thing. Like I'm just, I got old really quick. I think I, I went to school for fine art. And then, you know, when you get out of school, you have to find a real job and that's just not going to work. So I went through, you know, the what was Web 2.0 and then it's 2009. Everyone's reinventing themselves. And then it's the iPhone and everything's brand new with design and marketing on that. And then it's, you know, we're at a point now where so much has changed with the way that you're, that things are surfaced to you and the way things find you. And you had to find people when I when I was 17, 18, 19, 20 years old, getting out of school and trying to figure it out. So going through that whole process was interesting to get to a point now where, you know, Facebook ads are cheaper today than they've ever been. Huh. So you're getting you're getting dollar sixty cent installs without trying right now. Huh. But open rates are way down on email, so you have to figure out what that gap is. And when it comes to brand resonance, for us, that space in Soho, it's not just a place that you know you can come in and actually see the assets you invest in and have a conversation with us one on one about what actually happens in the app. It's also like a pretty cost-effective billboard in a place where you have a huge mix of different people, and you're able to sort of segment out who those real customers are going to be when you see who comes in and out of that store all day. So, that for us, like mixing that tangible and intangible, and not just relying on on you know Facebook ads, that's never ever going to work for you. You have to do something that's tangible. I've always felt that way, and I've always felt like that communication is super important one-on-one -on -one with those investors and those users. Who else is doing a good job with marketing early on as a company startup so, like have, that people will recognize but it's doing actually a good job? Yeah, I think uh, someone that you know, I think Zach and the team at Dirty Lemon do it really, really well. I think they do something super interesting where they've never thought about staffing a store full of people 
And they always knew early, like getting into somebody's phone, getting into a group chat or getting into that conversation one-on-one is super important. So that was always what they, they based They're their marketing beverage, goals on. beverage company, yeah. Yeah, so like, a, you know, a, a beverage company, it's a high price point. They're in stores, but they have their own space in uh, Tribeca as well. That's all cashless. It was cashless way before anybody was really doing it. Is walk in, take what you want out of the store, and then leave with it. And then you get the text to sort of make the payment later. Um, and they've done really well at not just badgering people with like the nudge emails or the, or the, we miss you, come back. Here's a, a promo code. They do really well with it. Um, and there's a lot, go ahead. Else? I'm sorry. Who else? There's there, I mean, Manscaped too, not to stay within the portfolio, but Manscaped just does it in a way that they leverage the mix of sort of the, the TV and like the, the typical ad buys, but with really, really smart positioning when it comes to what they do digital. When I get surfaced like an ad for, for Manscaped, it's in a conversation that's probably already being had. They do really well at just nudging without having to throw it in your face nonstop. So I think they've done really well with the whole brand start to finish. Yep. And uh, those guys are just really smart. They know what they're doing over there. Like, and you know them. And so um, looking ahead, um, what's the user like on Rally? Do you have enough? Yeah, I mean, you have enough people to, is it male? Is it female? Is it anything surprising there? Yeah, it skews male. Uh, it skews younger than I would have ever anticipated. I think that we're seeing, you know, somewhere around 30. A lot of times in certain offerings, it'll be, it'll be much lower in terms of of age. It's spread out all over the country and in, in hubs like New York and LA, where we have a little bit of a presence and we've kind of done a, a concerted effort to make sure that people know who we are out there. We see a little bit more in terms of conversion, but it's a big mix. I mean, we have three three core personas. The middle one is very much that that 30 year old who's tech empathetic who uh, you know, might be the apex of their friends, and they'll tell somebody, I have a great investment. You should take a look at this. This is interesting. But then excuse to the the very much like a little bit of that Wall Street bets crowd and then a little bit of the 401k crowd, and we kind of mix all that together. I think that the the assets tell that story for us. It's, it's something where we always look at what we do as a mix of sort of vintage with new, and that's, that's always going to be relevant. That aesthetic is kind of what wins right now across all marketing platforms on, on Instagram and anybody who curates a feed anywhere, it has to look a certain way. And that's that the problem with, you know, doing very new items. A lot of times with somebody who wants a brand new item is that you have to really, really sell it. It's hard to give something a nostalgic feel or a heritage feel or, or attack somebody's emotions in a way that an old or a unique thing that you remember, like a Babe Ruth thing or a Michael Jordan thing kind of does. Mm-hmm. So we, we always try and lean on that with our user base. And that's the big, connected like the big connective tissue is that our users look at what we're doing and have that visceral response to a moment in time i think when they were younger or something they remember really specifically so like to rebut something like i have a lot of older friends and lps who say oh, last thing people want in a recession is you know like a fractional ownership of a you're not seeing of an asset or a baseball card or something you're not seeing i mean you don't have the scale to know for sure but you're not seeing that yet yeah i mean it's it's true but and that's the right way to think about it. But at the same time, I think what they've never realized, what that older generation has never realized, is that the last thing a 25-year-old wants to hear is somebody, you know, from Bear Stearns telling them from 30 years ago, telling them what they should be doing with their money. I think they're in a position now that information is so easy to access. We don't necessarily need, you know, I like watching Jim Cramer for the entertainment value, but I don't need Jim Cramer to tell me where to put my money at this point. Right. I think you could see it start to finish in our 25 and 30-year-old investors they're way savvier than I definitely was when I was 18, 19, 20 years old trying to make my first investments. Yep. And they learn it themselves before making a decision. So they're making well-informed decisions about a lot of these assets. And 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 you guys went through the SEC and have your license, et cetera. So it's different than you know crypto or whatever. Like you guys are governed by the rules. Yeah, a lot of times too. Like we we're not we're not broker dealers. We work with a bunch of registered broker dealers who execute transactions for us and, and deal with a lot of that. 
but as a platform, we've always sort of wanted to do it the right way. There was a there was a massive opportunity really early before you and I even met to just go the ICO route and blow this whole thing out and take fifty million off the table type of deal. But that wasn't going to be around. We looked at it from a from a pragmatic perspective and thought, you know, we don't no one knows who Rally is in 2016, 2017. Yeah. So to get us to get the stamp of approval and say we're doing it the right way and do it with SEC oversight was almost necessary for us to succeed as a business, even if it slowed us down a little bit in the beginning. Yeah, really cool. And what's your favorite item so far that you've sold? Or IPO, uh, sorry, not sold. Yeah, there's a there's a bunch. I mean, the um the Ali contract, which we did actually sell off platform, uh, was super interesting to me. I didn't know it existed. So when we get that one of one stuff is when it gets really interesting for me. So that was the um the fight of the century contract for uh from signed by uh by Ali and Frazier, stamped at the garden, like all the stuff that really resonates for me in terms of somebody who really likes boxing and understands that sport. It was awesome to watch that sort of, you know, to hold that in my How hands. How does that even get store. out there in the real world? It was one. There's a lot of the stuff that's like that we get emails and phone calls and texts all the time that are mm. in these private collections that no one even knows exist. You're like a and global a of, pawn shop. Yeah, I mean, we're, we want to be like the the you know the antique roadshow in real life. Like that's what that's what that's where a lot of this came from is watching. Mm. PBS when I was younger and thinking about those people coming together and they find this item and they're waiting how much it how much it costs and what the insurance value could be and all that that's super interesting so when we get stuff that I didn't even know existed and it falls in our lap and someone says is this something you think that you know your group would be interested in when I look at something like that which is an automatic piece of history that that resonates with me directly it's a no-brainer and that's the stuff that makes it super interesting every single day is getting access to that really really cool unique stuff I did not know existed and what uh and then the little extras that you're doing with uh merchandise etc is cool i think those are nice touches that's uh that's you know again you brought this up so long ago the idea that like merch and the stuff so like what lululemon does is not that different than what we do to be honest they do it in a way where they're activating a group who turns into that sort of you know that tribe for them and if something's going to make their life a little bit better and they can tack on a little piece on top, they'll always do it. We try and do the same thing. If you're if you're being loyal to what we're doing, like we want to be in a position that we can give you something awesome, whether it's a stock certificate, it's a, a tour of the showroom, whether it's a one-on-one with someone in our network who's talking about a really specific asset that you might know, whether it's you know coming out to a party of one of ours in the store or in a, an event off-site, all that type of stuff is part of the experience that we want to build. We want this to eventually be you know, the Berkshire Hathaway type investor meetings like that fair day we want to be able to do that same stuff with our investors on our platform so that's all part of it have you done one of those yet that'd be cool we've, we've done them in you set haven't of small incorporated scale. a lot of media yet which is a no-brainer i think i mean yeah, i mean that's, it's not it's not a money maker yet but that's how you would build brand i would think you're not doing enough media 100 percent. we were in uh, la for the uh for the upfront summit and that was the first i walked like in a and, twitch uh, channel for rally road like an hour that, we, we're talking should. about doing it right now we should Mar- mark Suster brought it up specifically and said it's time to lean on some media this year and that was like the big to do for us before all this happened we looked at a lot of that as as long-term partnerships that we're building with a few really important sort of heritage brands which i can't speak to specifically yet but part of it was leveraging, you know, the most trusted resource in a space and having a massive event around that with our investors. That's coming up as soon as everybody's allowed back out of their house. We'll be doing that. That's really cool. Yeah. So that's the stuff yeah. that you can do to pull it all together. And then when did you get yeah. into investing just in general? Uh, in general, uh, as soon as I turned 18, I mean, as soon as I can open an account, this was when uh, I had an option. I had an E-Trade account and then I started paying attention to options and it was uh I think Option King was the name of the first account I had. And I realized, like, this is a real thing. And it's all these companies that I know and recognize that I felt like everybody else. Like, I had a, I had a, 
a head start because I knew like what Amazon was before people did. But then you realize you're going to lose all your money quickly. So that was 20, 2008, 2009. And then it was back to square one and paying attention to the smart people around me who were making some good decisions and trying to put together a real portfolio. And now I'm, uh, you know, 20 years later, I guess I'm in a position that I'm around smart people like Howard and I can get some insight in sort of what the real markets are doing on a day to day. So how do you, how do you, 20 years in. so how do you do it now? You have an account somewhere and in- yeah, now I have, I have two, I have my TD account, which is, and my Robinhood account. My TD account is like my, uh, is, is more of like the stuff I, I really, when I want to spend some money, I want to put something away for a little bit. It goes in there. Robinhood from an interface perspective, like nobody's doing it better than them right now. It's hard to not have, if you don't have a Robinhood account, like I've, my dad has a Robinhood account now, like my uncles, like I made sure all of them who are a little bit older have it too. It feels like you're doing something wrong if you don't have a Robinhood account. But now I think like using anecdotal evidence, and we've talked about this a little bit in the past too, what's on Twitter and what's happening in the world around you. It feels like I'm doing that more than I ever have. And I feel like it's, it's working. So like just in this insanity over the last two months or three months, I'm not, I'm not always thinking about, you know, health and well-being first, a family and friends. But then you start thinking about if there is a little bit of opportunity and, you know, the only longs that I kept on through all of this were, were Walmart and Starbucks. And that was really only because I was ordering from Walmart. They were delivering way quicker than Amazon all of a sudden. And then Starbucks, and we talked about this a little bit, was taking it so much seriously way earlier than anybody else. So I was still going to the office. They were putting up glass shields and, and removing any of the bottles and napkins and the pieces that were outside that people could touch. And they were taking it super seriously. And it felt like no matter what, anything with store closing was kind of priced in quick. So I put my money there too. And that was, those are the only longs I kept on. And it's easier now, it feels like with the way information travels to put together that anecdotal group of companies that you really care about and really like, and be able to sort of pay attention to it as it goes and, and be more in the financials of those businesses as you already made an informed decision. So that's what I've been doing for the last, you know, three or four years, but particularly in the last like three or four months too. Very cool. And do you remember the first time you panicked? Uh, yeah, I, I, I remember the exact moment. So this was, uh, in 2008, I, um, beginning or maybe it was 09, right. When things were starting to really get super bad before Bear Stearns, so everything's going down. I've lost 40 or 50 or $60,000, which as a, as a 21 year old was like 23 year old, how old I was. Yeah. It was like everything. But I remember seeing, I was starting to trade options way aggressively, way more aggressively than I should have, which is panic in itself. And uh, I was trying to jump into some Goldman Sachs puts that were getting, that were just tanking. And I, I had an opportunity, I thought, to make all my money back. I put in an order for like 100 puts at whatever the ask was. Uh, it started, ten, the stock started tanking. In theory, those paper gains were massive. I went back and the trade hadn't gone through. And that was like the worst thing that could have possibly happened. I made three or four horrific decisions at the end of that day. And the next morning, it was like March fourth or fifth at that point, I forget what, leading into that March 9th bottom, I wound up getting crushed on everything and sold every position on March 8th. So literally the day before the bottom. So that was the that was the last real panic that kept me out of the market for probably a year. Okay. Well, that's honest. It happened to a lot of people. I remember, do you journal at all or no? Will you share on Twitter? Yeah, but do you, I, I think do. journaling I, would I help you there. I stopped this year. But I have to do more. Yeah. I got to do more. I, I, after that, I started putting together, like I was doing that in Excel documents, making sure I was paying attention to my trades. And silver linings coming out of this. Anything that you see as a New Yorker? I think, that, I think from, from a New York perspective, like when you think about what's going to happen after this, there's no way empathy can be discounted after this. Like I look around at what's happening and this, the streets are empty, but at the same time, like everywhere you go, everyone's really legitimate looking out for each other in New York in a way that 
it's not like I've been here my whole life. It doesn't feel like 9-11. It doesn't feel like, you know, it doesn't feel like that. It feels different. It feels like what's going to come out of this is going to be a lot of community being built. I think education as a as a whole is going to change dramatically, not just in terms of, you know, higher education, but the way that that communities are educated around how to help each other. I think is going to be a huge, huge space coming out of this. In terms of finance, like I can't see a situation where um, people aren't paying attention to their money a little bit more too. I think a lot is happening, not just in in tech, in the world, in terms of, you know, P, there's some people I talked to who didn't know what furlough meant before this, I think. And now you're affected by something directly. Yeah, word of the day, furlough. No one had yeah, it furlough. I mean, no one had it. And then now I have a lot of people having a conversation with me, like asking just in general, in terms of like a just works account and how it's affected by a furlough. And it's something <laughs> yeah. where I can apply for unemployment. I had a deal with just works like changes. a year ago or just something. And it was just, a shit show when there was no crowds. Now everybody's yeah. got to know what just all their HR. Is. Yeah. Oof. It's cr- Yeah. They know what, and they know what Carta is and they understand how to log in. If they have, you know, shares of a company that maybe they're not at anymore, all these elements together, or it's this thing that's changing right now that you see where it's like, take care of yourself and your family for, first, which is always going to be hard to get away from, but then take care of the community right after that's changing dramatically. Before this, it was, it was way, way easy to be selfish. It's going to be super hard to be selfish after this. It feels like, all right, you're the man. We'll keep this short because it was just heavy-duty content. Canute, any questions, buddy? Not so really. You, no. weren't, you weren't listening. No, not really. That's my that's my, my goal next time is to get Canute to ask a question. He usually <laughs> has because it's such a marketing company. He knows yeah. the brand. He usually chimes in with I, some marketing questions. You fast, covered it. You I covered it really well. Product, <laughs> it is a fascinating product. It. Like everybody just looks at it, and and you have to exude trust, right? Like because otherwise, it's just an amp. I don't know how you get over that hump. I guess it has to be referred by a friend. There's no fast way to onboard somebody. No, that's all. That's all we try and do is like we talked about it before, man. Get into the group chat if you have. If you're in a right now, like everybody that's winning is winning because they're in the conversation. You know, like Tiger King wasn't a great documentary, but the characters are super interesting and it's unavoidable right now because every single group chat and every FaceTime it's come up over the last three weeks. Like that's all you can ever do to market your product is have somebody else market it for you. Yeah, it's the number one thing. You can yell about your product all you want. To see StockTwits, it's growing now, not because of me, it's growing, or just all the self-promotion. It's growing because people are talking about it and just inviting one of their friends on or saying, hey, you know, it's it's the type of marketing you can't buy. So truth, you can one person who says something good about your product, it offsets ten people who say something bad if you do it the right way, for sure. And what about website? Like, do you think that's important in the future? You're a mobile app, but do you think about website as you go forward? Yeah, I mean, that's for us is like putting that in parity with the app is always important. We're going through a big redesign right now, but for us, if we want to have a truly sort of continuous financial product and something that always has stuff going on, you have to be able to let somebody who's you know in their office be able to log on before they run out to lunch on yep. a computer and have that full interface, have that full dashboard. We want to sort of be able to educate and do more on the content side too. You need the screen real estate for that. So we'll definitely be doing that soon. All right, everybody. You heard it from Rob at Rally Road, a different angle. I've had Chris on before, but it's, it's really fun to talk to you. Uh, say, hi, <clears throat> say hi to the team and uh, I'll see you in New York, hopefully by the end of the summer. Hopefully. If not, I'll uh, sneak out to, to Phoenix, get some better weather. All right. You're the man. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Cheers. So there you have it. It's a complicated um, dilemma, right? People, you know, in a recession, do people do this? I wanted to hear from Rob because they're selling out of stuff still. And I think it's a combination of trust, boredom, and young people, if it's a unique enough asset, they'll put $100, $500 into it. Mm. They're not nervous. It makes a lot of sense. 
So before we go, you have a PSA. Uh, we're helping out uh, move supplies, PPP supplies. So Canute, take it away, and we'll see everybody soon on Panic with Friends. You know, it's almost impossible to find protective COVID gear these days, not just for you and I, but also for the big buyers. Even state governments can't get their hands on PPE supplies. Through my best buddy Stein back in Norway, I know of a large Chinese supplier of FDA-approved gear that's ready to supply big quantities. So if you know someone in need of critical PPE supplies, please have them email me at this address, covid.stein at gmail.com. That's C-O-V-I-D dot S-T-E-I-N at gmail.com. And I'll give them all the info they need. Just so you know, Panic With Friends is not making any money from this. It's purely a way for us to help put people in contact with each other. It's social leveraging at its best.